this last week. I caught myself saying this to myself. Uh, Dan, there is no tiger chasing you. Um, I'll explain a little bit. I, I had a long day, a lot of conflict resolution in different meetings, a lot of crisis calls that I had to take. And after the stress of all of it, I decided, hey, I, I need to go home and just relax, take a deep breath. I need to un- unravel a bit here in the quietness of my apartment. And somehow I had tricked myself into thinking I didn't have six kids anymore. And so I, I, get, I get back home and I'm sitting down on the couch. And here's what's happening around me as I'm trying to kind of just, just calm myself and breathe. Amanda, who is one of our other pastors, my wife, is, a, is across the room with one of her staff members, Jenny McGinn, her director of kids' ministry, and they're having a full-blown, intense meeting about the new initiatives they have coming up for their students and kids at our other church, which is fine. But then on, on the left-hand side of me, four of my older children are all fighting over who's just cheated in Monopoly. And then the two kids are standing two feet from me, both asking me questions, different questions at the same time, expecting me to have some supernatural gift of answering two different questions that are being asked at the same time. And I I just kind of had to stop and go, Dan, there's not a tiger chasing you. Now, Now let me explain and back up a little bit because I know that's a peculiar statement. Amanda Talmadge, my wife, For the first 10 years of our relationship, we actually sat with a mentor, a vocational counselor, and a cognitive behavioral psychologist, Jack Wilson, each and every week for 10 years. That was our go-to. This was how we were going to establish a healthy relationship and a healthy relationship with each other and our jobs. And Jack soon realized I'm a bit of an intense type A person. And so he could tell as as an important conversation came up in our time together, I would I would start to lean forward and talk with my hands and breathe heavier. And he would see my jaw start to clench and he see me start to touch my face. I touch my face when things get a little intense like this. And he'd just go, Dan, look behind you. And I'm like, what, Jack? And he'd yell it at me. I'd go, what? He'd go, there's no tiger chasing you. And that was his way of just saying, Dan, I see your body right now. I see how you're breathing. I see the pace at which you're talking and it doesn't match with what's actually happening in your life. Anxiety has set in, and you need to be present to what is actually happening if you are going to manage it. And it's so important because we find ourselves in the midst of an anxiety pandemic. During August 2020 through February 2021, the percentage of adults with recent symptoms of an anxiety or depressive disorder increased from 36% to almost 42%. Increases were largest among adults ages 18 to 29. The CDC says the spread of disease and increase in deaths during large outbreaks of transmissible diseases is often associated with fear and grief. Social restrictions, limits on operating non-essential businesses, and other measures to reduce pandemic-related mortality and morbidity can lead to isolation and unemployment or underemployment further increasing the risk of mental health problems. Increased time, they go on, increased time on the internet and social media streams with the intent of coping or connecting has now been associated with increased anxiety. And so here's the translation from the CDC, Dan translation. Fear, grief, increased social media presence, the loss of job, the loss of loved ones, All of these have triggered one of, if not the steepest incline in communal nationwide anxiety 
potentially has ever been recorded in modern day history. And many of us in this room have not just faced one of those triggers, but all of those triggers that are associated with both clinical anxiety, but also acute anxiety. That low hum of anxiety that you feel kind of undergirds your days. It feels like there's a heavy man sitting on your chest. That is the acute anxiety that has increased as well. But if we believe the scripture, and if we believe that that Jesus, who was, was fully God, the exact representation of who God is, is killed, is crucified, is resurrected from the dead, and then ascends to heaven and deposits his very spirit, the spirit of Yahweh, the king of the cosmos, into us today, then we have to be honest about the fact that the spirit of Jesus wants to speak into this anxiety-drenched moment the way that Jesus himself spoke into the anxiety of disciples then. And so whether today or 2,000 years ago, the question that Jesus asked that's so prevalent and relevant for us is why is your heart troubled? Why is your heart troubled? You see, this section of the Gospel of John starts with Jesus actually giving a command. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And he obviously gives this command because their hearts are really troubled. And he sees it with his friends. He feels it and he speaks into our reality now the way that he spoke into their reality then. And so in a significant season of anxiety, we must ask, what was actually causing anxiety in the disciples then? So that we might be able to learn from it now. The same spirit that spoke then speaks now. And how does God still the anxious soul? And what I'm going to suggest this morning is that as our reality of God increases, the power of our anxiety decreases. And, likewise, as our reality of God lays dormant or decreases, the power of our anxiety will always increase. Our experience of non-clinical anxiety, and I want to be specific with that, Macho did a great job the other day saying this, but, but we really do believe that the Jesus of the Gospels can heal us emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. We also deeply believe that God made and created and breathes his life into scientists who make medicine, and that is good. So please don't, don't hear anything different today. But when it comes to non-clinical anxiety, and our experience of it, it revolves around our ability to experience God in reality. And so to explain a little bit deeper, let's look at why their hearts are troubled in the first place. And the only way we can do this is to actually back up a bit and go, why are their their hearts troubled in in, in John 14? Well, we've got to go back to John 13. Because it's in John 13 that we see three important things that precede the disciples' anxiety. The first of those things is this. The disciples' idea of their influence has now been turned upside down. The disciples have been chosen to be students of the most electric, catalytic, authoritative rabbi the countryside had ever seen. There was popularity for them here. There was a a perceived power. And for the first time in their lives, they were being seen by other people as the chosen ones. The 
ones who had power to do miraculous things, the one who sat at the feet of this crowd-gathering, miracle-making revolutionary named Jesus. And in their righteousness and in their chosenness, in their power and in their popularity, they come to an upper room for this Passover meal. And Jesus, the Savior, right, Jesus, the Son of David, what they hope to be the Messiah, stoops down on his knees and begins to wipe the muck of a Middle Eastern road off of their bare feet. This is John 13. And as Jesus moves over to Peter, one of the ringleaders, to wipe down his feet, Peter responds and says, Lord, are, are you going to, are you about to wash my feet? And Jesus replies, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you're going to understand. No, 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 says Peter. Uh-uh. You shall never wash my feet, Rabbi. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand, he asked, what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you go and do them. And so in one swooping bow to the ground, with a towel and a bowl, Jesus redefines what it means to be influential and important. And their heads are now spinning. They will not be powerful and in control if they are to follow the way of Jesus. Instead, all of a sudden, their influence, at least it's being told to them, their influence is going to be tied up in their smallness, in their humility, in their ability to connect themselves with the dirtiest parts of people's lives. That would be disorienting. I've seen it with some of you. I've seen it with people that I meet for coffee over the week when they come into a space and I have to reframe the gospel for them and tell them, hey, listen, I know you got a bunch of accolades. I know your financial portfolio is strong. I know you have worked hard to get those promotions. I get it. You you have strived and strived and strived, and you've deserved it all. But you need to understand, none of that makes you influential in the kingdom. None of it. And I've seen people, as I've said it, just kind of go, what? what are you talking about? What have I been doing with my life? This is the level of disorientation that these disciples would be dealing with. And it's one of the areas where this anxiety is coming from. They've just been told their influence is not what they thought their influence and power would be. Their idea of influence has been turned on its head. But secondly, their idea of security has been dashed. As Jesus begins the Passover meal, he says, I'm telling you now before it happens that when it does happen, you're going to believe who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone... I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of 
he was going to betray me. This is one of the most awkward of awkward moments ever. Because Jesus is not eating dinner in some big banquet hall, right? He is at an intimate table with 12 folks. This is like the weird start of a murder mystery dinner. Like, one of you. Like, it's strange. It is a super strange moment. And if you know the rest of the story, then you know Judas actually goes out to betray Jesus on this night, turning him over to authorities for some cash. And this is a major turning point in the Gospels. Why? Well, because at this point, Peter and the whole crew are still expecting Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah who leads with power and in a revolutionary fashion takes on the Roman Empire who is oppressing the Jewish people. And, and they expect him to politically and likely forcefully and violently lead Peter and the rest of the disciples and their families to freedom like William Wallace style. This is what they're hoping for. This is what they're expecting. But Jesus, in this moment, has just identified his betrayer and does so in what seems to be one of the most passive ways ever. He's passive about it. And then he submits himself to the betrayal and to the violence that's provoked by this man named Judas. And so if you're one of disciples, one of the disciples or the friends of Jesus sitting at this table watching this unfold, the message is now very clear. The campaign that you've been a part of, the one that you thought would lead to your safety and your security, is being led by somebody that is no longer in control. Meaning, I'm not really safe and secure, am I? And we see this all the time with some of you where you get the bad test results at the doctor's office. Or you get the phone call from a parent. Or you find out that you're likely going to lose the job. And it rattles us. To the degree where we start breathing heavily. And we lay awake at night. For hours. Anxiety filled about what the future might hold. This is where anxiety comes from. Their idea of influence has been turned upside down, but secondly, their idea of security has been dashed. And then third, their idea of righteousness, their goodness has now been called into question. If you read this account in another gospel, you see something else that Jesus begins to call into question, mainly their righteousness, their goodness. One of the gospels reads this way, then Jesus told them, this very night you will... All fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll, I'll go ahead of you in Galilee. And Peter, I love Peter. Peter replies, even if I fall away on account of you, I'll never do that, Lord. I'll never do it. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answers Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Uh, that is a that is an that is a punch to your pride if you are Peter in this moment. That is an uppercut to what you thought was your goodness and your righteousness. I I, I remember I had started speaking at this large church. I was twenty two. These idiots put me up on stage in front of thousands. I don't know what they were thinking. 
But I started teaching, and I got four or five sermons under my belt, and I started to get a lot of affirmation from it. And I thought, maybe, hey, maybe there's this is going to work out for me. Maybe I don't have to con- go back to this law school path I was on. Maybe this is going to be a good thing for me. So I would walk out into the lobby after preaching to, to, to large masses of folks, and 30, 40 people would come up to me in the next 20 minutes and offer me affirmation, and I was loving life. And I remember the week, about after the fifth sermon I gave, I, I go into the offices, into the mail room. There was still one of these things called a mail room where you could reach into a cubby and get the snail mail. That was happening then. And I, I reached in and I got a letter and I, I started to open it up. I see it, it's, it's a letter addressed from an individual. And in the attention line says, Sunday sermon. And here's where my head's at. Here's the narrative I'm, I'm painting in my mind. I'm like, it's probably someone just affirming me again. I'm on a roll and so I, I kind of un, un, undo the letter, and as I do, a bunch of magazine clippings fall to the ground. I'm like, what in the world? And so I, I, I go down on my knee, and I start to pick them up. I pick the first one. It's, it's a picture of Brad Pitt. And then the second one is Leonardo DiCaprio. And then the third one is David Beckham. And, and now my narrative is like, maybe this somebody thinks I'm super cute. This is great. And then I, I take the letter on and I start to read it, and here's the first line. They were so articulate. Mr. Sadler, just in case you need models for what appropriate attire looks like when you speak on Sundays in the future, I've included some clippings. I was like, no way! But you understand, I'm disorienting this. I, 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 in my mind, in my heart, I'm going down one path telling myself a crazy narrative where I'm a hero. And I've earned all of this affirmation, and instead, I get hit by a truck of humiliation and some weird truth-telling. This is the level of disorientation the disciples have just experienced. Also, I continue to laugh at that story because I picture somebody at their dining room table cutting out pictures and taking that time. I'm like, you're not getting that time back. It's not coming back to you. But, but Peter is one of the disciples on Jesus' inner circle. He's a doer. He's intelligent. He's been an incredible rabbinic student. And yet, in one of the most important moments of his ministry, in which Peter thinks he's at the the, the climax where he is set up for power and success and righteousness before God, Jesus says, yeah, Peter, you think you're good, but you will betray me and fail me in the most meaningful moment of your life to date, on this day. I want you to see and feel and hear how shook these students are. They go into a Passover night with preconceived ideas about their influence and their security and their righteousness and goodness, and they are walking away realizing, I am not as influential as I should be. I am not as secure as I want to be, and I am not as good as I had hoped. And so, Mosaic, there are a thousand different micro reasons why we carry anxiety around. I've spent too much time indoors with my six kids over the last two years. That's a micro reason, right? I don't like the way that I look today. I compared myself to someone on the way to, right? I I, I have so many different tasks and I don't have enough time and this relationship I thought should be working out this way, but it's not working out this way or I may not get that position that I was primed for. I mean, there's so many micro reasons for the anxiety we feel. Very often, if not most often, 
The sources of anxiety today are the same sources of anxiety for the disciples back then. Am I influential as I want to be worshipped? Am I secure enough? Am I good enough and actually worthy of love? When anxiety comes and we feel our heartbeat elevated, when that low hum of anxiety is chasing us throughout the day and we're breathing shallow, shallow breaths, when we are rolling around at night with some narrative being spoken into our brains, we have to ask the question, which one of these do I struggle with the most? And could this be the source of my anxiety today? And that moves us to the most pivotal question that is asked to help still our soul. I mean, what is it? What's the pivotal question which Jesus asked that can ultimately still the soul? Well, here it is. Don't you know me? Don't you know me, Philip, he says? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you know me? This is a question dealing with reality. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our day today, as my reality of God increases, the power of my anxiety decreases. And as my reality of God lays dormant or is irrelevant or decreases, the power of my anxiety is going to increase in my life. Now, there seems to be some discrepancy here because, of course, those disciples were believing Jesus. If they didn't, why would they be risking so much to follow him? But the disciples, they, they've done something that even the best of us church folk do. They have fallen back into the framework that isn't truly, truly dealing with the concept that God and Jesus are one. They aren't dealing with the reality that God is exactly like Jesus. They aren't dealing with the reality of who God actually is. Instead, what has seemed to happen in their minds, and often in ours, and often in mine, is that there is Jesus, and we like Jesus' radical teachings, his authoritative teachings. We like that, and we like the fact that he loves us. And then there's this other perception of God that many of us has formed based on parental units, their successes and failures, have they loved us or not loved us, potentially their absence. We have a perception of who God is based on pastors and priests that we've had and religious institutions and religious weirdos that have hurt us in the past. And these perceptions, they rest in the back of our minds, forging our values and our decision-making processes. Which is important to note that this is part of the reason why the Gospel of John is written the way that it is. The Gospel of John was largely written to remind people that God and Jesus are one, that you cannot pull them apart, that Jesus is the exact representation of God, the full and exact revelation. It's why the Gospel of John starts so differently than the other three Gospels. In the beginning, John says, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. John is saying right off the gate, John is saying God is Jesus and Jesus is God. 
Later on, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John, again, is saying Jesus is God and God is Jesus. In John 10.10, I and the Father are one. This is the gospel writer again and again trying to make it clear that God is Jesus and Jesus is God. And it's why the way Jesus attempts to still the soul of the anxious is by responding, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. I love Philip. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. And Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is saying, I am God and God is me. God is exactly like me and there is no unchristlikeness in God. And when we forget this, and we let our preconceived notions of who God is, formed by a political party, or a parent, or a priest, or a pastor, or George Burns, or Jim Carrey, or a demanding judge, or a distant deity, shape our image of God, we will ultimately make faulty assumptions that God wants us to have power and platform. And when we don't, we start to freak out. When we don't get that promotion, we start to lose it. When we don't live up to our parents' expectations, when it comes to our vocation, we start to breathe heavier. And if we make those faulty assumptions about God, we'll we'll believe that God promises security and safety when he never does. And we'll believe that God only picks the holiest when he is clear that I have come to take care of the sick, not the healthy. But none of these anxiety-inducing ideas are true if God is exactly like Jesus. Jesus reminds them that he is God in flesh and there is no unchristlikeness in God. They are reminded of the reality that God is servant, that God gives life through death, not through safety and security. God is for the sinful. And as that reality of God increases in them, the power of their anxiety decreases. So let me just end with John, the Baptist. Most of you know this story. For those that don't, John was a crazy guy. Weirdo. Weird religious dude. A cousin of Jesus. And had a, a gift about him, a way about him that is largely missing in the American church today. He was brilliant at speaking truth to power was not going to be scared of those in power. And so spoke honestly to those in power to the degree that he got in trouble with those in power. Found himself in prison. There's this weird moment where John the Baptist sends his students, his disciples, to Jesus, his cousin. And on this specific day, those disciples come to Jesus and they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, John, your cousin, John the Baptist, he's in prison. Our teacher, he's in prison. And he wants to know, here's the question, he wants to know, are you the one? Now this is a peculiar question. 
Because John the Baptist is the guy that actually baptizes his cousin to the degree where the, the skies open up and the father speaks, this is my son Jesus with whom I'm well pleased. Like John knew, John knew well enough that at some point he said and declared, this is the Lamb of God, this is the Messiah, I have to decrease now so that he can increase. This is the reason I was here in the first place. He knew And yet he sends his disciples on this specific day to ask the very peculiar question of his cousin Jesus. Are you the one? Why would he do that? Here's why he does it. He he does it because he knows he is at death's doorstep. He's asking the question because anxiety has set in. Now the reality that he might not have this future vocation and calling out those in power is real. He knows now that he is not safe and secure, and so he's breathing heavier. And he's asking questions that he hasn't asked before. And Jesus looks at John's disciples in this moment and says, Listen, I am the one. I'm the one who's going to set captives free, and I'm the one going to bind up the brokenhearted, and I'm the one that's going to heal the lame and allow the blind to see. I'm the one. And John is great among men. I love him. And then he stops. That's his answer. His disciples are longing for him. They say, I'm the one. I'm going to come save him. Doesn't. In essence, Jesus says, I'm the one. I love him. He's great among men. But John is going to die. And John is going to be forced to ask the question that you and I have to ask. In the middle of crisis, in the middle of our anxiety, when the test results read something we don't want it to read. We have to be honest about the fact that Jesus never promises vocational success or influence. Jesus never promised security and safety. We have to ask the question, is Jesus love fact that God is good and with us enough, even in the worst seasons. In many days, our answer is going to be no. But I promise you, those are the days where the panic will set in, and our hearts will start beating faster, and we'll get a pit in our stomach. But on the days that we can refocus on who God really is in Christ, say yes, those will be the days that stills our soul. And so we remember Christ today. Christ that says he loves us and is for us and is with us regardless of what season we are in the face. As we take communion together, he asks the same question today that he asks to them, is that enough? Is that enough? And so Lord, we come to you.
And we ask that you would still our souls in the midst of a very weary season. God, we ask that you would intercede where you will. And will remind us of your goodness where you will. God, we long for vocational success and influence. We long for accolades and promotions, for meaningful work. We do, and we pray for that. We long for safety and security, and we pray for that. But above all, Lord, we are asking to be a community that is able to come to you and answer the most important question, which is, are you enough? When things don't happen the way that we want them to happen, when crisis sets in, when anxiety increases, we want to, to see you vividly, the full revelation of who you are, and we want to be able to answer yes, come what may. So we ask these things in your name, Jesus. The one who was and is 